we have seen with the mechanism of the 12 links how we perpetuate our uncontrollably recurring rebirth, our samsara. And in order to stop that whole recurring process of uh, rebirth, filled with, uh, propelled by ignorance and uh, disturbing emotions and compulsive impulses of karma, and to stop the recurring problems and suffering that uh, occurs because of that, we need to stop this uh, cycle. So there are two places that are weak in this cycle. The one that is uh, most crucial, of course, is to stop the first link. In other words, we want to achieve a true stopping of our unawareness of how we exist and how everybody exists. For that, of course, we need a correct understanding of the voidness or emptiness of the uh, self, that it doesn't exist in these projected ways in which we imagine that uh, we exist and others exist. But we also need to stop activating the karmic aftermath. And I think that's where we can begin in order to deeply stop activating the uh, karmic tendencies and potentials. Of course, we need to get rid of the first link, you know, our unawareness. But uh, as a first step, I think we can work with uh, the seventh and eighth, not the seventh, the eighth and ninth links. This uh, thirsting or craving and an obtainer attitude. So this is what I'd like to speak about this afternoon. To stop activating these karmic impulses, the potentials for the karmic impulses, I should say, uh, we need to deal with our feelings, how we respond to our feelings. So in each moment, we have a, whether it occurs in a sequence or not, that uh, is open to discussion, but uh, we have the basis of a body and mind. That's the fourth link. Then with uh, our sensors, cognitive sensors, we are aware of objects. We perceive various objects whether it's sights or sounds, or it could be thoughts, it could be memories, but there's some sort of uh, perception there. And we distinguish some sort of object within our mental landscape or within what we're seeing or what we're hearing and so on. And we experience that contacting awareness as either pleasant or unpleasant. And this is going on all the time. And we then, either pleasant, unpleasant, or if we're in deep meditation, neutral. And we get a feeling of happiness, unhappiness, 
or a neutral feeling. This is something that we can learn to recognize in each moment. And then the question is, how do we respond to this feeling of happy or unhappy, even when it is a low level? And what I want to introduce is the strategy of nothing special. I call it after term that uh, one of my teachers used, the reincarnation of Sirkin Rinpoche. He used to call him the nothing special Rinpoche when he was young. No matter what went on, nothing special, no big deal. Um, <laughs> his predecessor would say the same, <laughs> uh, but not in exactly the same words. The old Sirkin Rinpoche, I traveled with him in, the, uh, in Europe and North America and they took us up to uh, the top of the Eiffel Tower, and his response was, nothing special. You get up here, and you just have to go back down. <laughs> so what's the big deal? <laughs> uh, this, I think, is a very helpful attitude that we need to have when we are feeling either happy or unhappy. Nothing special about that. We tend to project exaggerations onto how we're feeling, our moods, don't we? That I'm feeling a little bit unhappy, a little bit sad, or what we would say in English, a bit blah, you know, I just, bleh, you know, I don't feel like working, I don't feel like getting out of bed. This type of uh, thing in the morning. And we make a big deal out of it. And because we make a big deal out of it, then it makes the unhappiness even worse. Or we're with somebody and we're having a good time, and we say, aren't we having a good time? Isn't this great? And that tends to ruin it uh, almost instantly. But uh, when we're feeling okay, when we're feeling particularly a little bit uh, sad or a little bit unhappy or a little bit, you know, eh, I don't feel like doing anything, that type of uh, attitude, I mean, that type of experience, what we want to do is not have this thirsting, this craving that I, you know, want this happiness not to end. And I have to have this happiness, this unhappiness end, or this neutral feeling not to decline. You don't want to activate that impulse, the, you know, the karmic impulse. So the way to do that is to regard what we're feeling as nothing special. I'm a little bit, you know, I don't feel like getting up in the morning, so what? I have to get up anyway. Then you just get up. I don't feel like working, so what? You work anyway. I don't feel like, you know, getting up in the middle of the night to take care of my baby who's crying. Doesn't matter that I don't feel like it. You get up anyway. 
This comes from the insight that the nature of samsara is that it goes up and down. Life goes up and down. Our moods go up and down. That's just the nature of things, isn't it? Sometimes we feel okay, we feel happy, not necessarily dancing in the streets happy, but uh, we feel okay. And other times we don't feel okay. And it'll go up and down all the time. So main thing is to not make a big deal out of it. It's nothing special. You know, now I feel unhappy. So what? There's nothing special about that. This, I think, is a very essential insight to have. Of course, it's nicer to feel happy. So we want to bring about the causes for happiness. You know, we're not negating that. But, uh, you know, you bang your foot, it hurts. I'm really unhappy about that. Or I miss the train, I'm really unhappy about that. But, okay, that happens. There's nothing special about that. So I don't really have too much to say about that. But uh, perhaps we can just think about that for a moment, or more than a moment, about how do we deal with our moods? Isn't it the case that our moods of how we feel go up and down? That's certainly the case with our practice, isn't it? Sometimes it goes well. Often it doesn't go very well. So again, the attitude is nothing special. Didn't go well today? Well, that doesn't mean that, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. The attitude of nothing special is different from whatever. Whatever means we don't care. You do want your practice to go well. But if it doesn't go well, it's not the end of the world. Because, of course, some days it'll go better than others. Naturally, it's going to be like that. So you don't get upset. That ties in with having no expectations and therefore no disappointments. You just go ahead with the practice. This is called armor-like perseverance. Perseverance that protects you like armor, that it doesn't matter how difficult it is, it doesn't matter that some days it's not going well, just do it anyway. Because you, we recognize that it's beneficial. So it's the same thing in terms of our moods. Whether I'm feeling happy or unhappy, I just continue to do what I need to do in life. Not make anything, not make a big deal out of it, not exaggerate it. This has to do with our projections of exaggerating that it's so important and then we identify with it. 
So the more that we can do that, the less we are activating compulsive behavior. You know, I'm feeling so miserable, and then, you know, you make a big deal out of it, and then, to use this silly example, we go and stuff ourselves with chocolate. Or we have a, you know, get drunk. Or we cling to a friend, you know, you're supposed to make me happy. Or we distract ourselves with uh, surfing on the internet, looking at our Facebook feed. That's compulsive behavior. It's activated by this craving, this thirsting. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I feel bored. I'm not very happy. And so, you know, I really am thirsting to get rid of it. So how will I get rid of it? by looking at my phone again. See, this is the practical application of this understanding of the 12 links. What's really crucial is how we deal with our moods of happy and unhappy. And to be able to really not overreact doesn't really matter that I'm happy or unhappy. I need to do my work. I need to take care of my family. I need to get out of bed in the morning. Okay? So think about that for a few minutes. How do we actually deal with how we feel? especially when we're feeling unhappy or bored or don't feel like doing anything. What we need to try to understand is when we crave or thirst with respect to this, I have to get, you know, you make such a big deal of it and I have to get rid of it that that activates our compulsive behavior. Need to make that connection. Cause and effect. If you want to get rid of the effect, you get to stop the cause.
Okay. This is quite delicate. It's really not very easy to uh, put into practice. If we are enjoying something and are relatively happy enjoying it, there's nothing wrong with enjoying something. But what we need to have is the understanding that, of course, it's not going to last. And, of course, if we have too much of it, it will turn into suffering. We get tired of it. We get bored of it. We get full. If we eat any more, we'll get sick. If we stay, if our friend stays for too long, he or she will get on our nerves. Leave already. So there's a delicate balance here. You know, nothing special. Oh, aren't we having a great time? This is so fantastic. But without negating it completely, just being relaxed about it. You enjoy it, you enjoy it for what it is. As long as it lasts, it lasts. Without an incorrect consideration of something which is impermanent, to consider it permanent, and something which is going to turn into dissatisfaction and boredom, <laughs> to consider it as ultimate happiness. That's what's so delicate. And if we are unhappy, well, I don't like doing a certain task. I'm bored with it. Well, maybe there's another task that we can do that also needs to be done. So we don't have to necessarily push to do that particular task at work. Depends on the circumstance. We need to take a break, you take a break. If we tend to instantly go to our Facebook feed, or in my case, I'm a bit of a news junkie, so I look at the news, put a limit on that, and don't exaggerate it, that this is going to make me feel better. Of course, it's not going to make me feel better. But I need something. You know, so you start to apply more gentle methods first. Gentle method would be to what should we say? In the case of going to our Facebook feed, limit the amount of time and recognize it for what it is. It's a distraction intended to make me stay there, hoping that the next notice that I read will be more interesting. which, of course, it isn't. 
So again, recognizing reality. But the most effective thing at this level is nothing special. Nothing special that I feel bored. I feel not like working or doing it. I know that at this level of where I'm at, I need a little bit of distraction or I need a break. So you take a break. You don't make anything special about that either without going to the extreme of treating ourselves like a baby. And gradually lessen these distractions by understanding more and more that I'm not going to solve anything. To look again at my phone. So nothing special. We understand that uh, whatever we experience is arising dependently on many causes and conditions. So the situations that I get into, the uh, life form that I have, you know, very basic. Being at a certain stage in life, now I'm an old person, now I'm a young person, now I'm a man, now I'm a woman. That's what's called the ripened result type of life form that we have and where we are in our life. So we're old and our joints ache or we become forgetful or the hearing is going off or what I find is most noticeable is the distinguishing aggregate gets weaker. In a restaurant with a lot of noise and a lot of people talking, hard for me to distinguish what the person I'm with is saying from all the background noise. That's age-related. But nothing special. Nothing special about that. What do you expect? So don't make a big deal out of things. Don't exaggerate. It is what it is. It is what it is. That is a very profound statement. That's reality. My sister always used to say that. I have an older sister and her husband. Uh, had uh, a form of uh, dementia and uh, he also couldn't walk and eventually he died and uh, 
this is what she would always say, or what she would always try to remind herself about. It is what it is. He has this sickness. He's in a nursing home, and it's sad. She's unhappy about it, but it is what it is. This is the reality. So accepting reality is also part of this whole thing of nothing special. It's a sad situation. You feel sad, but it is what it is. There's nothing special about feeling sad. So don't, you know, wallow in it. You know, like, just stuck in it. It'll pass. So we tend to, you know, what ripens from our karma is the life form that we have are repeating similar patterns to what we did before, experiencing things similar to that happening to us. Um, Our environment and so on. Also, supporting type of uh, actions that we did before. And what is significant here is what ripens from karma is our feeling of happy and unhappy. In fact, that is how the feeling aggregate is defined. It's how we experience the ripening of our karma. It's what differentiates us from a computer or a machine. You know, the program crashes, the computer doesn't feel unhappy about it. We feel unhappy. (laughs) The computer doesn't. So, (laughs) when we're feeling happy or unhappy, whatever happens, we have beginning of lifetimes, so you know we've acted destructively. That causes uh, unhappiness. We've acted constructively. That brings happiness. Ripens in happiness. So unless we are doing something specific to try to generate a happier state of mind, it's going to go up and down. Sometimes we feel happy. Sometimes we don't feel. Happy, we feel unhappy. If we want to feel happier, do something constructive. As His Holiness Dalai Lama always says, you know, compassion is the source of happiness. So what does that mean? It means stop thinking about poor me and open up your mind and your heart to think about others. When we think about others and wishing them to be happy, that's love, and to be free from unhappiness, when you're wishing somebody to be happy, you can't be unhappy and wish somebody to be happy. You're focusing on happiness. You're generating happiness. And 
when we stop being so narrow in our way of uh, focusing on just me and what I'm feeling. I mean, here we're just talking about the feeling, the craving level, the thirsting level, about this feeling. You know, this is so terrible. You open up and you think of everybody. So in that way, we can generate a little bit of happiness. But if we don't do anything to generate it, or to try to generate it, well, it just goes up and down. That's, it is what it is. Now I don't feel like working. Nothing special. Okay. So that's the craving link, the thirsting link. We want to stop activating karma. And it goes together with the next link, the obtainer link. We want to stop doing that as well. So remember we had, we specified two aspects. One is uh, this uh, um, focusing on the object with which we are, you know, that we are experiencing with happiness or unhappiness. And then the obtainer attitude, which is focusing on me who is experiencing this object with unhappiness. So again, It's not just sense objects that we're talking about, but it's also the emotional state. And I think that uh, all of this is suggested by the uh, teachings on overcoming the eight worldly feelings. You know, we have praise or criticism. That's, you know, don't get over happy when people praise us or over depressed and unhappy when people criticize us. There's always going to be people, you know, when somebody praises us, there are always going to be people who criticize us. When somebody criticizes us, there's always going to be others who praise us. So it's nothing special. So we extend that method to not just the happiness or unhappiness, but to the object, that praise or criticism or hearing good news or bad news. Stock market went up, the stock market went down. Nothing special. Goes up and down, of course it goes up and down. It is what it is. It's reality. Things arise dependent on many factors, so it changes all the time. Or gains or losses. Or things going well or things going poorly. These are the eight transitory things in life. We look at it literally. The term. These are the things that change, that are transitory in life. Praise and criticism, good and bad news, gains and losses, things going well, things not going well. 
and then our feelings towards it is being happy or unhappy with this. So the attitude of nothing special is directed toward in the eighth link that feeling of happy or unhappy and then the ninth link at that good news or bad news. It's nothing special. Things going well, things not going well. Computer works very well. Computer is slow. The internet is down. Okay. Happens. Arises from causes and conditions. When the causes, when the conditions change, it'll go back up. And be inventive. <laughs> Find different ways to make something work. Always have an alternative plan of how to deal with things. And then this uh, attitude or this obtainer attitude of throwing out this net of me and mine. Me, I don't want to be unhappy. I don't like this fact that my computer program crashed. That I lost my data that I was, I, you know, didn't save. I don't like that. that we identify my data, my program. So again, what do we try to do in order to not activate the karma, you know, the compulsive behavior, the, compulsive, the compelling impulse to do something, to swear at the computer? The computer doesn't care. You see, all of this is activating these compelling impulses I feel unhappy. I'm unhappy with what? That the computer is not working, or I no longer have a signal for my phone, and me, poor me, I, you know, I've lost my signal. You know, we identify with it. And all of that then activates that compelling impulse to swear, to really get angry, to yell it, you know, in the air or whatever. So we don't want to activate that. And the simplest way is this attitude of nothing special. This happens. Nothing special about it. Not the end of the of the uh, earth. It will pass. And then we just deal with it. Okay? So, think
think about that. I mean, this is the initial step that we want to take to break this uncontrollably recurring syndrome. It's not just dealing with rebirth as a very practical application in terms of our daily life. When in our question session is asked what is the most beneficial type of practice that we can do, it's analysis. Analyze, you know, we have to first learn the teachings. So His Holiness is always emphasizing study Buddhism. You have to learn the teachings. You can't apply the teachings if you don't know the teachings. And then try to figure it out. See how it applies in your life. Try to put it together with some other teachings. They're saying this equalizing, putting things together. So you put this thing together with the teachings on the eight worldly dharmas. Fits together. And like that, we try to work with it in our daily practice. We think about what has been my experience today or yesterday if you did it early in the morning or what do I feel like now and then you try to analyze analyze means to discern to see what was what was I doing that uh, was causing problems what teaching would apply to avoid repeating that problem I interacted with this other person and then we got into an argument or how I dealt with the work situation or how much time I wasted looking at my phone. That's the practice to try to look at our lives, look how are we Dealing with life, am I actually using the Dharma? What Dharma teaching will fit and apply in this situation? And how many different pieces of the Dharma puzzle can I put together to apply to this situation that I'm facing, let's say, today in my work that I'm going to have to deal with? This is the most beneficial and as Western people who have been trained with education to analyze things, to try to understand things, we need to take advantage of that, use that. Of course, you need a little bit of concentration, but it doesn't have to be perfect. Some. You need some concern for others, compassion, etc. But that also can be developed. It doesn't have to be, you know, now you've become a saint. And as we apply the teachings in our daily life, 
and see more and more how it is of benefit. Then we build up so-called more positive force, more positive energy that makes it easier, easier for us to develop further insights, further understanding, so that eventually we don't even have to think about it, about nothing special. We don't even have to remind ourselves. We just deal with the ups and downs of life in a very graceful type of way. Like how you deal with old age. Without complaining. Without getting depressed by it. It is what it is. Nothing special. All right? So think about that for a few minutes, and then actually we have another hour. I don't have very much more to say about this particular point, but uh, we can discuss it, ask questions about it, and so on. I don't want to rush over it. I think it's a very important practice, this practice of nothing special. And again, it's not the same as the attitude of whatever. It doesn't matter. I don't care. But we don't make a big deal out of anything. Okay? And if you have a Facebook page, then it's very interesting or you do Instagram or anything like that, your attitude toward the amount of likes that you get, how much of a big deal we make out of that. Nothing special whether somebody likes it or doesn't like it. There's always going to be a lot of people who don't like it, and there's going to be a lot of people who like it, so what? then we identify it, then they like me. Throw that net of me onto what we posted, that's me. And then they like me. Silly, isn't it? Doesn't make us feel better. We want more. Suffering of change. Stop compulsively speaking. <laughs> Think about it for a while.
Okay. Some thoughts that came up that uh, one objection that people might have is that, uh, well, isn't it unhealthy to ignore our feelings? That uh, need to recognize perhaps that uh, I'm unhappy, I'm in an unhappy relationship, or I'm in an unhappy job, or something like that. Isn't it important to recognize that? We don't want to ignore it. Well, with this practice, it's not that we're ignoring these feelings. It is important to be aware of them. Not to make anything a big deal out of it, of what, you know, that unhappiness. Because when we make a big deal out of it, it tends to paralyze us. Or we tend to act impulsively in a way that is not going to make things better. So what we want to do is not overreact, but then with a clear mind, figure out what to do, how to improve the situation. So we're not ignoring our feelings, but we are dealing with them with a clear mind, not one that is going to just act impulsively because we freak out, we make, you know, this is so terrible that I'm unhappy. So this comes back to this, the uh, close placement of mindfulness on the feelings as being true source of suffering. So when we focus on the feelings, what I'm feeling now, happy or unhappy or just calm and neutral, doesn't have to be, you know, in the fourth dhyana, you know, this super concentrated sense or state. I'm just feeling very peaceful. We don't want that to decline. So we understand this. We, we look at it. We, our way of taking that as an object is that if I overreact toward what I'm feeling, that's, just, that's going to be a source of suffering. It's going to make problems. So with that understanding, then it helps us to apply the teaching of nothing special to the feelings. They're just the ripening of karma, karmic potentials. We've acted destructively so many times in past lives and constructively so many times and so, of course, it's going to go up and down depending on circumstances. Nothing special about that. If we want to stop this up and down, we have to stop planting more karmic potentials. 
which is coming from that first link of our unawareness or ignorance. But that's the next step. But initially, what we want to do is to try to manage somehow not to activate moment to moment this, these potentials to act in a crazy, compulsive way. Okay? So, what questions do you have or comments? Hello. Yeah, um, I wonder, um, we talked about uh, unawareness. Um, Unending? Unawareness. Unawareness. And then uh, the impulse, and then uh, leading to feelings. But I really I, don't understand. What you I said. mean, like, uh, I wonder, seems like uh, the feelings comes after the unawareness and uh, the impulse. Right. I wonder if. Uh, the thoughts that we have, if that also comes in there, because uh, I really didn't understand what you just said. Could thoughts. somebody repeat it, or it's thoughts, force, thoughts, thinking, thinking, thinking. Yeah. Um, does uh, does the th uh, the thinking process uh, come before the feelings or with the feelings? Seems like. Um, before the feelings comes, there are some thoughts about a situation, or does the feeling come uh, without the thoughts? So your question is about thought, and do feelings arise with I, thought or without yeah, thought? Yeah, with thoughts, or before thoughts, or... No, the feelings arise of being happy or unhappy. You don't have to think about it. Uh, uh, you get the thinking process comes in when you overreact to it. This is so terrible. This is so wonderful. I want it to go away or I want it to not go away. That can be with thinking or without thinking. Thinking This is complicated now. <laughs> what do we actually mean by thinking? And is thinking the same as conceptual cognition? Usually it's called conceptual thought, but that confuses the two. That's processes. what I'm asking, actually. That's okay, what I'm so asking. normally in our Western way of uh, classifying things, we regard thinking as a, ver a mental verbal process. That we're thinking with words. That's thinking. But that's only one form of conceptual cognition. We Conceptual cognition is with a category. 
Now, we have, let's say, individual items, like uh, all these sort of things in front of us that we see. And um, like what I'm seeing now here. And we fit them all into a category. And that category is people. Or the category is Norwegians. And I'm able to relate to all these colored shapes that I'm seeing as people, all in the category of people and Norwegians, or all these objects. I have the, the uh, category of apple. They're all apples. That's a category. I mean, they're individual items, but there's some sort of common characteristic that I can identify all of them as apple or people or Norwegians. And then we have words that are associated with it, designated onto them. So we can view things Well, let's give an example, you know, a more relevant example to what we've been discussing. We have different experiences. And we have a category of happy and a category of unhappy, don't we? Now, every moment of experience is different. When we feel happy, we don't feel exactly the same thing every time, do we? Or we feel unhappy, we don't feel exactly the same thing every time. And what I experience and how you experience, very different. Yet, we have a concept of happy or unhappy, it's a category. And we fit all of these individual experiences. When we experience them, we experience them through the category of happy or unhappy. Now, the dog has that as well. We as humans associate words with that. You don't have to have a word for these categories. Do you? So verbal thinking is thinking with the words. Conceptual thinking is thinking with the categories, whether you have words or not. Now, these categories and the words are useful. Without them, we don't have communication. There are two types of category. There are object categories, like all these feelings are happiness, or all these items are apples. 
and there are audio categories. If I ask everybody in this room to say the word happy, all of those sounds are different. It's a different voice, different volume, different pronunciation. How do I understand all of them as saying the same word? It's because I have this audio category of the sound of the word happy, of a sound, and then I associate a word with it. That's how speech works. It's absolutely necessary. I mean, we shouldn't think that conceptual thought is, you know, the worst thing in the world and horrible. Buddhas don't have it. That's true. However, Buddha is, be able to, is able to communicate anyway. But for us, we could not possibly have communication without these concepts. The problem is that we have all sorts of associations with these concepts, with these categories. Happiness is the most fantastic thing in the world, and I have to have it, and has to never go away. We add all sorts of qualities to it. Unhappiness, worst thing in the world. Norwegians, and then we have, you know, this preconception of what we think all Norwegians are like. There we have problems. We have what we call preconceptions, prejudices. That's conceptual thought. It doesn't have to be verbal. Absolutely not verbal. Quieting the voice in our minds is just, you know, baby step, very difficult baby step. But to overcome, you know, in our meditation, conceptual thinking, that's only the first step. It's all these prejudices, these preconceptions. Oh, this meditation is going so well. Expectations, it's not verbal. So when we activate our karmic potentials with this, you know, thirsting and the obtainer things, of course we are seeing what we are experiencing in a category, so it's conceptual, this happiness or unhappiness, but then we are exaggerating, adding qualities to it. So we need to differentiate when we analyze concepts, conceptual thinking, between conceiving of what we feel as a thing, happiness or unhappiness, and what we conceive of as being the qualities of it. We make it into a thing that's like making, you know, putting a big line around it, encapsulating it in plastic. It's a thing. Now I'm feeling happiness. Now I'm feeling love. I love this example, which is, you know, how do you know that I haven't, I don't just like you, I love you. What's the, what's the boundary between liking somebody and loving somebody? It's conceptual, isn't it? 
Now I have love. It's a thing. And then, within the context of it being a thing, then there's all the conceptual process of the qualities of it. This is the most fantastic thing in the world, and it's going to last forever, and, you know, all of that. But first we have to get rid of that. (laughs) Then we work on making a thing out of stuff. But nevertheless, conventionally, we need words. We need categories. Otherwise, you can't communicate with anybody. So it's functional. So in this process of activating the karmic impulses, what we want to do is at least, I mean, is not make a big thing out of what we're feeling, even though we can recognize, you know, now I'm feeling happy, now I'm feeling unhappy, and then not exaggerate that this is the most fantastic thing in the world and I want it never to end, or this is the most terrible thing in the world and I want it to go away instantly. And then me, 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 you know, I have to be rid of this. Poor me. All of that. So the conceptual process is there, but it certainly does not have to be verbal. In fact, most of the time it's not. Do you understand what we mean by conceptual thought? It's with categories, putting things into boxes. Impute is what we will discuss tomorrow morning. Imputation is the topic for tomorrow morning. So we will get there. Patience. Yeah. It's on. Okay. Uh, I was just thinking about uh, nothing special in relationship to a mood. That's okay. I can understand that. But if um, if you have somebody who is psychotic, depressed, deep, deeply psychotic, depressed, it will be very difficult for this person to say nothing special. Absolutely. And um, I couldn't uh, help my mind getting stuck there because I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm thinking about this state, but I'm also thinking about how is there a way of um, helping? Is there a way of helping this person to well, to look at what you say? I don't think so. I from my experience and from what many others have uh, noticed as well. You need to be a bit emotionally stable and emotionally mature in order to practice the Dharma. 
when we are really very disturbed emotionally and so on, Dharma is too strong a medicine. You need professional help. With depression, it might be medication, it might be whatever. But only when we are relatively stable. Doesn't mean that we are you know, at a very advanced level, but relatively stable. Can we start to really apply Dharma methods? So meditation is not what you would recommend to somebody who is depressed, clinically depressed. Not at all, it's too much. It's too much. It's the same thing uh, in terms of the uh, voidness teachings, voidness or emptiness. I prefer voidness for various reasons. You don't teach that to a child or a young teenager. You can't deconstruct the self before you have established the conventional self. So children and young teenagers are basically establishing their sense of a conventional self. We mentioned this before in terms of being an individual, not just uh, part of the parents. And only when they have established a sense of a conventional self can you then start to deconstruct the projections that you might have about the conventional self. But if you start to deconstruct prematurely, you're left with nothing. And that's very psychologically dangerous. That I don't exist at all, doesn't matter what I do, etc. So it's the same type of thing that uh, you don't apply a strong medicine prematurely when somebody is not ready. So this nothing special is not for somebody who's really depressed. We're just talking about ordinary life, that you're fairly stable and everybody experiences sometimes, you know, our mood's going up and down like that. Uh, going back to some of the methods you mentioned uh, or getting insight uh, by asking yourself the question of the experience yesterday or today. Uh, and also as you followed up that uh, there are also, uh, I should say, things that we have not put uh, words or concepts on. Um, um, from that, I think that in some cases uh, I wouldn't be able to ask the right questions. I probably sometimes don't really understand. There may be more subtle processes going on. And 
in this situation, I, my experience is that uh, if I have been to a retreat with meditating more for several days, things can come up, uh, and I maybe suddenly, suddenly understand maybe what kind of bad experience or what something in the past, or I can maybe can suddenly spontaneously uh, see these things in a with a different flavor or a different uh, color I mean, so without uh, i mean a cognitive or uh, logical questions uh, sometimes mm -hmm. it's not logical it's just uh, mm -hmm. something i don't have words on that's mm -hmm. a comment right this happens uh first in order to be able to let's say apply these uh, teachings of the 12 links, you have to, to hear about it, understand it, learn it, think about what it means, become convinced that it uh, makes sense, and so on. So we can't observe you know, the mental factors and stuff like that if we've never heard about the mental factors. So that, of course, comes first. Then in terms of insight, We always speak about the, uh, it's usually called the two collections. I find the word collection is a little bit misleading because it sounds like it's a collection of stamps. It's not like that. It's a network because everything networks together. And it's not merit. Merit sounds like, you know, you collect points. But it's a positive force. It's like charging a battery positive force and deep awareness. Not so much wisdom, deep awareness. So one of the things that is absolutely essential is to understand what it means that you have to build up, to use the regular terminology, enough merit to be able to understand something. Well, it's very, very true, but uh, if we don't get the right terminology, you get quite a wrong impression of, we put it into a different category, you know, that we have to do certain practices and then you will earn it. Because I've done 100,000 prostrations, you know, now I've earned the, uh, enough points to be able to get you know, the insights, the understanding. It's not like that. When we do constructive actions, whatever these constructive actions are, helping others, to use the most general category, helping others, kind thoughts to others, builds up positive force. So what's happening is that we are opening up our minds and opening up our hearts to more and more other people, more and more happiness and benefit for others. And I think this has an effect because the more that we open up like this, the more our minds are open up to being able to understand things. We're not locked into our preconceptions. 
So I think it's quite rational that the more positive force we build up by thinking of others, by opening up our minds and hearts, that that will enable us to get more understanding, to make more progress. So just sitting there in me, me, me meditation, and I have to get this inside, and I have to get perfect concentration, and I have to get this and this and this, very closed, very tight, and hard to make progress unless we put equal effort into actually getting out there and helping people. Developing more love, compassion, concern for others. We're too focused on me and my meditation and my progress and my mind. Very difficult. Very difficult. Okay? So there are two types of retreat. <laughs> there's a retreat where you do a meditation retreat and there's a retreat in which you help others. Sometimes we have to do that when we are not making any progress in our meditation, put in an intensive period of actually helping others, then go back and usually discover that it makes a big difference, big difference. Uh, thank you. When uh, reflecting on this uh, nothing special, um, a few things came up, and I would like to share one, is that I can see for myself and say, okay, I'm in a bad mood. Okay, no big deal. That's how it is, ups and downs. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I can see that it might be quite problematic in social life, in communication with others. Somebody who is telling me, oh, I'm so enthusiastic, I had a very good day, and I'm going to marry soon. And then you say, okay, nice, but not a big deal. <laughs> you know, you, you don't make friends like that. Right. So, <laughs> so how do you get along? I mean, I can see this point is very important, but um, you are still in, a, in samsara, in a, and you have a social life to play. Um, so how do you get along with this? Well, <laughs> it's a matter of how we apply these things. It's nothing special that I'm feeling in a bad mood. And if somebody else is uh, uh, depressed, from our point of view, it's nothing special. In other words, we don't freak out. That, you know, oh, they're so depressed, I don't know what to do, I can't deal with it, and so on. You don't tell them that it's nothing special. <laughs> You know, <laughs> do you know this expression, man up, which means, you know, be a man and take it. You know, you can say that to a woman as well. <laughs> this type of thing, you know, stop complaining. That's not uh, skillful at all. But it's in terms of how we respond to the other person. Okay. It's nothing special that uh, the baby is crying. Babies cry. And so without freaking out, I will see what is bothering the baby and try to remedy it. 
So nothing special is referring to our attitude about our own suffering or our own, you know, when we encounter others. But you take it seriously. The other person is very unhappy. And often what they want is just for somebody to listen to them. Not this attitude of uh, <laughs> that's typical of, of uh, the approach of men toward uh, a woman crying is that, you know, it's a leaky pipe. How do I fix it? <laughs> Tell me what I need to do. Whereas the person who's crying just wants somebody to listen to them and to understand. They don't want, you know, somebody to fix it as if, you know, there's <laughs> a leaking pipe. So if somebody is unhappy, listen to them. Without, as I said, making it something, over-exaggerating it in terms of how we deal with it. Nothing special doesn't mean that it's not important for the other person. And if I'm feeling unhappy, doesn't mean that I don't do, you know, it will pass. So we take steps not to get lost in it, not to identify with it, not to think that it's going to never change and that it's the worst thing in the world. So you deal with it. Anyone else? Yeah. Still not on. Yes, now it's on. It needs some time. Yes, I'm just um, reflecting uh, because since we have this tendency in our society to have this ability to be more intellectual, analytical, I I also feel that in a way we are, it's kind of easy for us in a way uh, to... I, re I really get what you're saying, but it, it can also become like an as-if. Um, things are not a big deal and a way of maybe suppressing and becoming a little bit cold, you know? You know, it's, it's not a big deal and maybe not even feeling the emotions. And I think we live in a time where we have we have a lot of metaphors which are quite technical about our mind. We're like we're machines. We're very heavy-headed. We ha we don't do physical labor anymore. We 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 have we kind of are a little bit disembodied. Maybe a little depersonalized. Uh, and we also maybe have now. Um, it's a trend that we're not going to show emotions. It's more like a Japanese style is also becoming a trend here. You know, we don't want to show it. We want to be in control. And I'm, I'm just wondering, I was uh, happy when you said the word grace uh, because I kind of also felt that it's a pitfall to 
uh, it's kind of we can easily lose some of the juice and become very you know here and i was just wondering about the grace aspect to uh, great or great grace 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 amazing grace and i was wondering in this um, grace oh Distinguishing aggregate, not very good. Amazing grace. Yes. And I, <laughs> and I was just uh, wondering about this grace aspect in this, um, or it's it was just feeling feeling of where's yeah the juice and and how and maybe that's the love and compassion in also acknowledging the the the. Um, the emotion that's there and um, you know open up with compassion if it's pain there and seeing that we're all in that big boat and sending love when um, yeah i don't well know. definitely i think the the problem here is that the word feeling i don't know about in norwegian but in english it uh, refers both to feeling a level of happy and unhappy as well as the emotions. We're not talking about the emotions here. We're only talking about happy and unhappy or neutral. So that doesn't block the emotions. And when we have the attitude of nothing special about being happy, as I said, that doesn't mean that we don't enjoy things. We enjoy it for what it is. I enjoy listening to nice music, or I enjoy a good meal. Nothing wrong with that. Thing is, you know, this thing of hanging on to it, and I don't want it to end, and, you know, getting really uptight about it. The same thing with sadness, you know, when we have a loss, let's say somebody dies, Of course you feel sad, it is sad, but you don't make such a huge thing out of it, it's, you do it in a healthy way. And you know that I feel sad, but you know, as life goes on, you get on with your, with your life. So like that. Now this doesn't block the Emotions, what we want to overcome are the negative emotions. So the destructive emotions, the disturbing emotions, which doesn't mean that you bottle it up inside. You apply opponents to it to overcome being under the control of anger and greed and so on. That deals with overcoming the attitude about the self we feel insecure about and we use all these mechanisms to try to make it secure but uh, whether we feel I feel unhappy for example you might feel unhappy but that if I make it into a big deal then poor me I'm so unhappy and that really becomes a block to feeling love and compassion for anybody. Whereas if we make no big deal about it, okay, I don't feel 
very happy, but when I think about others and, you know, so many other people are not feeling happy now, and may everybody be happy, that helps us to overcome being unhappy. So it doesn't block it, it enables us to have, you know, these positive feelings no matter what level of happiness or unhappiness we ourselves are experiencing. If we get too caught up in being happy, you know, with pleasure, then again, we don't think about anybody else. So we need to differentiate, although in our languages we use the word feeling for both of these things, the emotions and some level of happiness or unhappiness. These are two very distinct things. Right? And we express our emotions when it's appropriate to the appropriate audience. You don't tell your child, I'm so miserable, I feel so insecure, and so on. Your child is not the appropriate person to tell that to. You know? One uses discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking about something from earlier today. Yeah. Um, maybe it's not appropriate. I don't know. <laughs> 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 yeah. I, I was just I was just thinking about um, this. Uh, this uh, thinking about um, no beginning and no end, mm. I, I don't understand that. Um, although I can in some way relate to it, I, I, I cannot really grasp it. It's like when I'm looking at the stars, I cannot understand that there is an end, but I cannot understand that there is no end either. You understand what I'm asking? I don't understand. What I'm uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this gets into a very complicated topic, which is what does it mean to understand something? What does it mean to understand something and to uh, accept something as being true? We can understand just from the logical argument. I understand the logic of it that a nothing can't turn into a something and a something can't turn into a nothing. That if a continuity is uh, progressing has to be prior moments and later moments. So we have this in our law of uh, conservation of matter and energy. It can either be created nor destroyed, only transformed. So we can, I hate to use the word, but we use it in the West, intellectually understand something. But I think what you're talking more about is, because it's not that difficult to understand the argument but to accept that it's true 
This is the problem. To accept that it is to understand that there are zillions and zillions of, universe, of galaxies with even more stars and planets. I mean, it's you know, hard for our minds to encompass all of that. I can understand that that is the case. But to really accept it and deal with it is more difficult. So what do we accept in terms of beginningless matter and energy? In other words, before the Big Bang, there were other universes, and that ended, and then there's a Big Bang. You know, if there's a Big Bang, there has to be some circumstance that causes the Big Bang to start. Otherwise, you should have a big bang every moment, or just randomly. So that should have been something before. If you posit God before that, well, how did God start? No beginning. If you posit nothing before, when did the nothing start? No beginning. There's always no beginning. But, as I said, what is more difficult to really deal with is accepting it and accepting the consequences of it. So to accept it means to accept the consequences of it. The consequences of well, then you you try to think about it. What are the consequences of beginningless time? I mean, of beginningless mental continuum. I have an individual mental continuum, and it wasn't created by somebody else. It didn't come from nowhere. So whatever I'm experiencing, I'm responsible for. That's the consequence of it. And it's not going to end when I die. It's going to have further consequences. So it enables us to take more responsibility. That's what follows from it. And if what follows from it makes sense and helps us to lessen our suffering, then it confirms why Buddha taught it. He taught it because it'll help us to lessen our suffering. So understanding something is just one part of the process. It's not so difficult if it's explained properly, to understand it intellectually. Then you can pass an exam and you know, just spout back you know, what the teaching is. But to accept it means to see what are the consequences, how does it affect my life, so this whole analysis thing of you know, the practical application, and does it actually help to lessen my problems? Then it's helpful. Then we can accept it. So I think that's the way that we need to work with it. Because if we say, you know, There was a beginning. It was created by, you know, some higher power. 
This is not our responsibility. And if we give up responsibility for our actions, how does that affect our lifestyle? So these are things that we examine in terms of accepting an explanation. What are the benefits? What follows from it? What are the disadvantages? Are there any disadvantages? These sort of things. Anything else? So, um, um, what uh, transmigrates yeah. from life to life? Pardon? What uh, travels from uh, rebirth to death to rebirth? Right. What travels is the, what continues is the subtlest consciousness, the subtlest mind, with the subtlest energy which is supporting it, and as an imputation on that, the self, conventional self, which we will discuss tomorrow, what that actually means. Together with the, the karmic uh, tendencies? Together with the karmic, with all the tendencies, not just the karmic ones, the tendencies of all the mental factors, concentration, anger, love, etc. So um, if we uh, uh, say this is a definition of soul, then we can call it soul? I, can we call it a soul? Um, Yes, in a certain sense. I mean, I was quite surprised that uh, uh, I hadn't heard His Holiness the Dalai Lama use the word soul, but uh, recently I went to some teachings of his in uh, Holland, and uh, he used the word soul. But the question is, what are the characteristics of the soul? Now, whether you call it soul or self, it's a matter of terminology. But... The uh, Sanskrit word is an Atman. And there is a conventional Atman and the Atman which is to be refuted, which doesn't refer to anything at all. But conventionally, we are people. We are individuals. It's a person. Are the number of uh, souls... Finite? Uh, finite, but uh, uh, countless is the, the word that is uh, used. So it is finite in the sense that there are no new ones being created because then that implies a beginning. So there are no beginnings. And the mental continuum continues once you become enlightened. So, finite number, but 
countless, there's a finite number of stars. Well, stars are still emerging. That maybe is not a good example. But uh, you know, difficult to count. The word countless is just uh, uh, the number of the largest uh, uh, unit in the Sanskrit way of uh, classifying numbers. It's 10 with 60 zeros after it. That's the word countless. So I translate it with the English word zillion, which is an unspecified, very, very large number. Okay? So then let's end with the dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to achieve the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of us all. <laughs>